Productivity on its own, it truly just means accomplishing the goals that you set for yourself. So I think that if we approach productivity through a lens of intention, you know, I intend to do this labor and then to stop at a certain point, and then I intend to spend my energy, focus, time, money on these pleasure or rest activities, that's phenomenal. Although people are talking about doing less and achieving more, I think sometimes that achieving more is achieving more work. So there definitely is this hamster wheel that we get on that we feel guilty if we stop working. And I think that technology exacerbates this. That was author and productivity coach, Kate Litterer. Kate is a productivity researcher and coach who specializes in intentionality, habit formation, mindfulness, and slow living. Today we're talking about her relationship to productivity and specifically diving into the topics that are associated workaholism and time management. If you want to get a better grip on how you are using your time, if you want to become more productive so that you can have more of your life, this is an episode to listen to. If you want to know more about Kate, you can find her over at her website, katelitterer.com, or you can follow her blog, which is really good. She has taught me so much. I love how she is a researcher. That is the tending year. Without further ado, let's start talking productivity and time management. Welcome to Here to Thrive. I'm your host, Kate Snowwise. This is a podcast for people who are ready to step up and live a happier life. It's for those of us who are dedicated to understanding ourselves and getting the best that we can out of this thing called life. It's a mix of psychology and modern spiritual thought, always with a focus on practical advice so that you can take it back and apply it to your own life. I don't believe we're here to merely survive. I truly believe we're here to thrive. So let's get going. Hey, Kate, welcome to Here to Thrive. Hello, other Kate. It's great to be here. I know I have so many Kates on the show, by the way. I think Kate's <laughs> I clearly my favorite name. I know you personally, but you are my go-to expert for the things we're going to be talking about today. Productivity, time management, and I'm pretty sure you were the person that even brought the idea of workaholism into my sphere. So we've got a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm excited about all of these things. I love that you're excited about these things. I want to learn a little bit more about you first, though, and how you got excited about these things. What has your journey been like when it comes to a relationship with all three of these things, workaholism, how you manage your time, and that desire to be productive? Where did it come from? Sure. So I think that there's a pretty common theme in productivity research. And if you read productivity books, often people will say, I got into productivity because I got incredibly overwhelmed, or I got sick, or I had some emergency happen. And I also fit into that. So I got into productivity and started addressing my own workaholism around three years ago when I developed chronic pain. And basically, my pain was in my like tailbone area. So I truly just couldn't sit. So I could only sit for certain amounts of time. 
And I had to be really limited about what I could work during or what I could work on during that time. And I was really grumpy about it. I really hated it. And um, I was really into spin class and I started going to the regular gym and just doing the elliptical. So that led me to podcasts. I wasn't listening to like, you know, pop music. I was listening to podcasts, which is how I found you, how I found, you know, Brooke McCallery's podcast and started learning about personal development and slow living. And then that led me to productivity because I found that themes that were fitting with personal development were also really fitting with productivity. So for example, time management. And I found that I was so fascinated with these things. And I started writing my blog, The Tending Year, sort of as a way to practice these productivity, personal development experiments to practice and um, to hold myself accountable. So that was really how I got into it. And I told myself, if I can do this for a full year, I can switch my career path and coach people in this. And it was like my, if I stick with it for a year, and I did. And you did. And now you do coach people on all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. What were you like before you had this chronic pain? Were you someone that would just work outrageously long hours Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, well, I know that before I had this pain, I was always sitting at a desk and I was also working all the time. I've always had, you know, multiple part-time jobs and I'm an academic. Also, I'm finishing my PhD right now. And this would look like waking up in the morning and going to my desk at like seven or eight teaching, going to a part-time job, coming back and working at my desk until maybe like eight or nine. And I always had the attitude that like, I have to do this, you know, like bad things will happen if I don't complete this, I would psych myself out and think, you know, like I'm going to get a good grade or I'll get fired. None of those things were actually true, but I was so obsessed with working and wouldn't allow myself to take breaks. It was really not healthy looking back on it, but I was also, you know, being in grad school, I was seeing a lot of my, you know, colleagues doing that same sort of, you know, we have to just be working all the time mentality. So being forced to not be able to sit, I really had to not participate in that anymore. And I totally want to talk about workaholism more, but before we dive into that, I need to understand this idea of productivity a bit better. Can productivity be healthy? Because I'm kind of thinking as a society, we're kind of obsessed with the idea of being productive. Like I think that could lead to workaholism. So can productivity be healthy? Oh, absolutely. I think productivity can make everyone's life so much better. And it's definitely made my life better. Like I walk the talk of the things that I write about and I really love it. So productivity on its own, it truly just means accomplishing the goals that you set for yourself. So I think that if we approach productivity through a lens of intention, you know, I intend to do this labor and then to stop at a certain point, and then I intend to spend my energy, focus, time, money on these pleasure or rest activities, that's phenomenal. Although people are talking about doing less and achieving more, I think sometimes that achieving more is achieving more work. So there definitely is this hamster wheel that we get on that we feel guilty if we stop working. And I think that technology exacerbates this. We always have access to our email on our phone. That's one of the things I actually did. I took email off my phone. And I think that 
it's very difficult for us to set boundaries around our availability and how much labor we're willing to do because a lot of work culture expects us to be always producing. Oh, that's exactly what I'm meaning. It's around that that expectation of always producing and that, like you said, we often feel guilty or there is this undercurrent of guilt if we're doing unproductive things. So have productivity hacks, if I'm hearing you correctly, they've allowed you to have more of that space or downtime that doing less in your life? Absolutely. Totally. I think there's two parts to this. The first part is that productivity hacks or tools, I'm able to use those to heighten my time management, to help myself focus, to really have clear, actionable goals. But also when I started researching productivity, I just learned why my brain and you know my body and my mind were acting in certain ways. So for example, one thing is Maybe you've heard of Parkinson's law. If you haven't heard of the term, you might know what it means. It's the idea that our work will expand to fill the vessel that we provide to it. <laughs> I you know? totally heard of this. Do you know, I was um, reading a book recently, and I think it was called Free to Focus. And he, the author Michael Hyatt, was talking about how he doesn't start packing his bag to go away on vacation until like an hour and a half before he leaves, because it could take him two days to pack it, or it could take him an hour. Oh, yes, totally. A hundred percent. Absolutely. So when I learned about like Parkinson's law, or another thing is the planning fallacy, this is the idea that we will say, yes, I'll get you that report tomorrow, not thinking about how long it truly takes us to do that report. So then we aren't working under duress. So when I learned these terms, I was able to recognize how I was practicing them or not practicing them in my life. And then writing about them for the blog gave me practice to intentionally, you know, check in and hold myself accountable. So productivity for me is both like having a system for how I approach my work and like being conscious of my mindset when I'm working, but also then, of course, using, you know, different tools or hacks that um, can help me to focus and achieve my goals. I should say to people, that was one of the things I've always appreciated about you, Kate, is that you are a researcher by nature. So you are very considered and scientific in the way you approach uh, everything to do with development. And I love these names of hacks and things you've learned I think that you do take it to a different level than a lot of other coaches I've come across in terms of your background and understanding, which is why I thoroughly appreciate you. Oh, thank you. That means a lot because I love researching so much. <laughs> so I'm glad to hear that you appreciate it. I want to dive back in a little bit more. You mentioned the planning fallacy. Can you tell us more about it? Oh, absolutely. So the planning fallacy is something I was so guilty of. And this would happen when, say for my part-time job, I had a part-time job doing writing, consulting, and web design. And if someone asked me to get a report to them, they wouldn't tell me a deadline. They would say, can you do this? And I would, instead of saying, yeah, can I get it to you next Monday? I have other stuff to do. I would immediately say, I'll get it to you tomorrow or in two days which was unrealistic. So the planning fallacy says, how long will this actually take you? 
And instead of just immediately volunteering for something, you keep that in mind. That way you can set yourself up for success instead of feeling stressed out when you approach the work. So planning fallacy is that you're just, you know, you have a false belief about how quickly you can turn something over and still be mindful and calm and not like hate the process when you're doing it. I now use, people may have heard of him. I don't know if you've heard of him, Kate, but have you heard of Brendan Bruchard and have you heard of his productivity planner? I have heard of him, but I have not heard of this planner. Will you tell me about it? It's actually right in front of me. I lie. It's called the High Performance Planner. Mm. Um, I love it. But what I have found is through doing it every day, I am... I am eroding my need to overcommit to things exactly as, you, as you're talking about because I'll write down like it asks you what are your top three things you have to get done today and then it and gets you to do a little bit of a map of your day and and answer some questions and I have found when I first started using it I was so unrealistic about the number of things I could get done in a day and by bringing this kind of lens of self-awareness to what my time looks at I'm starting to chuckle at myself, like, like, just laugh and be like, like, you can get all that done today, Kate, like be realistic. And I'm getting so much better at exactly what this is, not being unrealistic about what is achievable within my time. That's brilliant. That's so brilliant. That makes me think of one of my, the things that I think I've actually written a blog post about this to say like the productivity tool that changed my life, but it's similar to what you're talking about. And it's called the must do method. And I learned about it from Sarah Knight, uh, one of her books. And it's pretty much what you're talking about, where instead of having a running to do list that you just go, you know, because a to do list will never end. So instead of having a running to do list, you schedule your activities for the day that you must absolutely do them. So you don't just have 10 things on a to do list. So it sounds like you're doing that when you look at your list and say, okay, this is realistic for today. And like can laugh at yourself and be like, I really don't need to like do that. You know, I don't know, do the laundry today if I can do it Friday and I've got seven appointments today, you know, so that sort of that awareness, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, the, the lens of awareness has been uh, huge for me with my time management and how I use my time. Okay, I want to switch it up to workaholism now. Can we even talk about what this is? And is it like other addictions, Kate? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, for me, the way that I've thought about it, definitely. So I learned about workaholism when I was researching it. Um, and I learned about it from this person named Brian Robinson, who is a researcher. I think he wrote a book called Chained to the Desk. So the way he describes workaholism is, I'm paraphrasing here, where he says, we can't regulate our work. And it has negative effects on our life. So an example of this is like if you would feel anxious or guilty or lost when you're stepping away from your work and when you're not working, you don't know what to do with yourself. So I think of it, at least personally for me, as similar to an addiction and that it is something that I when I started addressing my own workaholism, I was so grumpy. I did not understand and thought it was stupid that I couldn't work at night. You know, I just was very petulant because I craved being consumed in work. And I also craved the little hits of dopamine I would get every time I, you know, submitted something to my boss or every time I finished another assignment. But as soon as I got that hit of dopamine, I would want to just dive back in and continually work. 
So I definitely struggled with regulating work. And this is something that I've written about too, um, because I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'll have seven years of sobriety on March 17th. That's epic, Kate. Thank you. Yeah. So I've written about how my experience with uh, alcoholism is similar to my experience with workaholism, where it's almost like I don't have the switch in my brain that switches off to be like, you're good. You've done enough, you know? So using all these productivity tools has been immensely helpful for me for just being aware and acknowledging when I'm like, ah, like, are you being a workaholic right now? Are you like attaching an emotional, you know, meaning to this labor that you need to do? And like, maybe that's not the best thing. Let's investigate that. So people have also talked about workaholism saying like doaholism, like you just people who struggle to, I mean, I imagine that workaholics like would struggle to even like meditate to like step away and just be present. So interesting to me because I'm just like, how many people feel these urges or twinges but have never stopped to label it as workaholism? And I think it's really interesting you said that when you started to look at this, you were a little bit like a petulant child. You were pissy that you couldn't work at night or that you had obviously decided that it may not be healthy to work at night, but there was this rebellious part of you that was like, screw that. Is that fair to say? Oh, it's so fair to say. And I'll be honest, I still have a role that's like, stop working at 5pm stop or like six or seven, you know, depending on when I start, because I work from home primarily. And I still sometimes I'm like, Ugh, but I could keep working. I'm not in pain. I'm not hungry. Why do I need to take a break? And I'll often just be like, it's the role. This is healthy. You know? So even when I still struggle with it, I'm like, go take a bath, go for a walk. Yeah. So definitely that petulant feeling was, was real. <laughs> I'm sure this is a, oh, no, I'm sure. Do you think, cause I'm not actually sure. Do you think this is more of an issue for those people that don't have clear separation between work and home, say those who work for themselves? Does it go across all of the different ways we work? Is someone in a corporate job just as likely to be a workaholic, do you think, as someone who is a freelancer? That's brilliant. That's an extremely good question. And I think that, I mean, in my experience, most of my clients are people who are doing freelance work or people who are researchers or students or professors or working in the gig economy, things like that. And um, when you're not in a nine to five, there's and like no one holding you accountable to stop working after eight hours. Like it, people can work much longer than that. And something that was very helpful for me for addressing that fact that I could work all day if I chose was reading Marley Grace's How to Not Always Be Working. How to Not Always Be Working. That sounds like a yeah. good book title. Oh, it's brilliant. So reading that, the biggest takeaway I had was that I was doing things that were sneaky work, but pretending that they were rest. So this would be like, listen- <laughs> yeah. I love it. You're like I was doing sneaky work. <laughs> I was like listening to business podcasts or audiobooks or reading reading business books or magazines or you know writing blog posts and a lot of these things. I was like, oh, this is fun. This is like nourishing me. And while it was, it was also work. So holding myself strongly accountable to doing, you know, non-productive, just like pleasurable rest activities was very important. And it was difficult at first coming from being such a workaholic to prioritizing resting and setting boundaries with myself. So I think it's difficult if you don't have someone holding you accountable in that way. And I think some 
corporations are doing this. You probably know more about this than I do, but some corporations are, you know, having like a four day work week or are stopping their, um, or they have rules that you can't check your email in the evening or on weekends, or they have mindfulness centers, you know, on their work campus or something like that. So I think companies are, you know, becoming wise around this, but I think that it can be very difficult when you're working for yourself and no one is holding you accountable. You know what? I think, um, Kate, some companies are starting to try, but there's still not enough. And what I think is more interesting is that even when organizations start to put these policies in place, like we don't expect you to check your email after hours or people ignore it and keep driving themselves to which is the most interesting thing to me is that it's not necessarily a company objective or even a cultural expectation within an organization, but those who are kind of type A high achievers just can't let go and want to go above and beyond. And so I do think it's often very individually driven as well. That's fascinating. Yes, absolutely. This is making me think of a book that I'm reading right now is Melissa Gregg's uh, Counterproductive. I think it came out in 2018. Um, But I was just reading about how in the early 1900s, when they were studying time management, they would take a film of a secretary, and they would show her smiling. And at this time, this is when there was a shift in thinking about, you know, the personal labor that you did at work. It wasn't just you're working for the company. It was how quickly can you type? Can you beat your own record? You know, so like this sort of obsession with, uh, you know, being a successful individual in your labor at work is something that's still happening and very rampant, but it was also happening in the early 1900s. So I don't know, that's like me geeking out about time management research, but it's fascinating to think about how these things continue and they just shift. Now it's email instead of like, how many words can you type on your typewriter? Right, because we can all type so fast now it doesn't. <laughs> We're no longer <laughs> counting that. That's just a given. Okay, so this non-productive time, you're saying that the reason that you uh, had to put some boundaries around how you worked was so that you could make space for this rest or non-productive time. What are the benefits you've seen through doing that? The first thing that comes to mind with this question is I started valuing my invisible labor. This is something I say a lot to uh, when I'm working with coaching clients too, to say, you know, or to make sure that we're valuing things like when you go shopping or when you are cooking or when you are cleaning or when you are, I don't know, getting a haircut or going to therapy. Like these are all things that we do to take care of ourselves, but they also take energy, focus, time, right? So these are labors. They might not have the same exchange value for you as if you were, for example, writing a report or working on a journal article, but there's still labor. So when I shifted to start thinking about how my labor was being distributed across my day, it allowed me to say, oh, those activities aren't quite rest. I'm not really resting in those times. And once I had done that, I was able to say, okay, what is, how can I rest and how can I, you know, like take a bath or how can I watch my partner play video games or how can I go for a walk or get away from screens? Like putting those things in, in addition to the labor that I was doing, in addition to the work I was doing, if that makes sense, like reconceptualizing how labor is and rest are truly happening in my life. 
So interesting to me. And so you just mentioned a few things that you do for rest. You will, if I'm interpreting this correctly, you like to bathe. Watch oh, your, I love that. Watch, yeah, your, that. Watch, watch your girlfriend play video games. Do you find that restful? You know, it's like so fun. It's, really, <laughs> it's like our favorite thing to do. I'm not good at it. She's good at it. Actually, also, she's my fiance now. We got engaged. Oh my gosh, is, congratulations. Kate. Thank That's you. Amazing. Yeah, we got engaged in January. So anyways, it's so, she doesn't play any like scary things. She just plays like fun puzzle stuff and I help with the puzzles. But it's like, I guess some couples just like watch Netflix. But our <laughs> thing is that she plays video games and I just curl up on the couch with the cat and watch. Do you know what I'm so, cracking up about is that my two little boys, Kate, they, and I know I've spoken to other parents who know the exact same thing. They're obsessed with watching other people play video games on YouTube. And I'm like, wow, Kate gets to do it live. <laughs> <laughs> I've had people, when I've told people, I love watching, uh, you know, my partner play video games. So like, do you, what is this called? Like Switch or something? I forget what it's called, but... <laughs> They've asked me if I've done that. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> I, I don't do that. We just do it. It's our romantic time, you know. But you find it restful. Oh, yeah. It's so restful. It's something where I'm not on my phone. You know, I'm being present with her. Sometimes we'll we'll do that and we'll just like have dinner and just chill out. And it's nice because we get to just snuggle up together. But I'm not on my phone. I'm not doing work. If I pulled out my notebook and started working, she would be like, hey, what are you doing? It's 8 p.m. So that's a really nice way for me to hold myself accountable for being present and just relaxing. And it's very low stress for me. Video games, I'm like, even if she dies, like she just like respawn or whatever. So it's very, <laughs> it's very the suspense isn't there. <laughs> it's like, I love it. It's so good because she can just respawn. <laughs> yeah, right? Everyone's going to think this is so nerdy, but I love it. I think it's really cool though that you have identified what actually does feel restful for you because one of the things I believe in is that a lot of people don't actually know what regenerates them, what actually does help them recharge. And I think just being able to label that and for you one of those things is like you said snuggling up on the couch with your cat and watching your well fiance I can't say girlfriend play video games and I think knowing that is is half the battle right oh it's totally this makes me think too of back when I took your channel your chill workshop forever ago that's how I um, met Kate is through my channel your chill workshop very mm -hmm. cool and I remember you asked us like to answer a question around like, what do we do to rest? And what do we do to like recharge? And I was like, I don't rest. I don't recharge. And that was sort of a big moment for me and being like, whoa, what does it mean if I can't think of something that means I rest? You know, so that that was one of my prompts for addressing that I was a workaholic. So thank you for that. That was very important to me. You're so welcome, Kate. Okay, so time management. Truth be told, I feel like this kind of sounds like a boring kind of corporate, like, let's manage our time. How do you view time management? Is it sexier than that? Or is it really just we need to manage our time? I mean, I think it's sexier than that, just because I'm fascinated with the like, the like ins and outs and ways that it works. But the biggest thing about time management for me and for when I'm working with people is shifting our perspective around time and shifting our perspective around work. So one of the great things about time management is that if you focus when you're working and you limit the amount that you work into these focused sections of time, you're going to have more time to rest and to play. 
So one of the time management tools that I've done before is just tracking my time. And it's fascinating to just get a list of, you know, that has all the little boxes you can fill in to see how you're spending your time. And I think it's empowering to see when you are, you know, places where you could tidy up and save time and then give yourself more time to rest. So time management can be like, I could see how it could be boring, but for me, I like to see it as like a fun, empowering way to find spaces where you can have extra time to just chill and play, things like that. I love it. And this is why I think all these topics are really, you know, intimately tied together. You know, if you're more, if you are more conscious about how you are using your time, you're able to be more productive, which gives you more space, which gives you more, and I read one of your blogs, more blank space, right? Mm -hmm. That you can do the other things. So it's just about using those 24 hours in a day more intentionally. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally. I think that's brilliant. And I think like what you talked about with the blank space, that's something that I intentionally will save, you know, an hour, give myself an hour to commute to a meeting or when I might only need 20 minutes so that I can have time to rest, chill, to do some breathing exercises, to get a snack. Like having that is such a kind way to rest. And this makes me think too about time management, doing thinking about how long I spend on activities and then remembering what we said about the Parkinson's law work will expand to fill the time that you give to it. I've really shifted my thinking around what is good enough work. So time, if I'm going to say I'll spend an hour on this one activity and when I'm done with it, I'm done with it. I've really had to shift my perspective around, you know, being perfectionistic and wanting to tweak everything. So I think limiting ourselves with time is a gift to ourselves. Oh my gosh, we totally have to dive a little bit more into this idea of perfectionism. You know, when I was training as uh, a psychologist, well, not even when I was training, when I was working in personality psychology, which I did for a number of years, it was the conscientious types that that was the potential downside of that personality trait is that they may spend a lot longer on their work because they are so driven to get it perfect. How has stepping away from this need to keep tweaking and polishing and, you know, getting it just right, how has that helped you and how difficult has that been for you, Kate? It was a little difficult at first, but the first thing, the first way that I addressed my own perfectionist tendencies with this, I was working with a coach once who gave me a challenge to do, I was like something small, like working, like making posts on Canva. So like making those like posts that everyone puts on Instagram that have the, you know, pretty backgrounds and then the text and whatever. So I would waste 45 minutes making one Canva post. And she challenged me to set a timer for nine minutes. And then when it went off, I got one minute to tidy up my post and then I had to post it and it ended up being great. It was fine. So setting those limits around it was very, again, empowering and helped me to be like, oh, this is going to be fine. So I've also taken this idea of doing good enough work. Like when I'm, I'm writing my dissertation right now, I'll be finishing that in the next few months. So being like, oh, this chapter is good enough. I'm just going to send it to my advisor. If it's not good enough, she'll tell me how to fix it. 
instead of wasting all this time. Often what you're doing is going to be good enough. And sometimes when I tell clients, like, just do a good enough job, there's a fear that good enough means, you know, like substandard. And that makes sense, like, especially in the field of grad school, like as a grad student doing the bare minimum, which is like your coursework, you know, your comprehensive exams, your dissertation, that just means you're on the same bar as everyone else. And there's this feeling that like, if you want to be more successful and competitive, you have to also be researching and publishing articles on your own. And you have to be, you know, applying to fellowships. So you have to do more than just the standard. So when I ask people to just do a good enough job, sometimes there's a fear that that triggers a scarcity mindset where you're like, I will fail if I don't be perfect. But a lot of the time, just doing a good enough job is almost all the time, to be honest, in my experience, is going to be great. And you're going to impress people because you already have a skill set and you're probably well trained in what you're doing. So good enough is excellent. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's something I've been thinking about a little bit more recently, actually, because I'm when we're talking about personality, I'm very self-directed. And so I have a tendency to hold on to things for too long before sharing them and getting feedback on it. Right. Like I'll like hold on to it and I'll try and fix it. But I'm only one person's view. And like you said, you know, I can hand this over to my supervisor and she will point out the areas that I might need to still polish up. But you could have spent another three days trying to get it polished only to find that you had you know perhaps done something that wasn't useful no it's totally true and it sucks when we can like feel bad about like the thing that I really hate the most is like people feeling bad about themselves and feeling like they're not smart or good or whatever enough when I'm like oh you're good enough is excellent especially working with people who are like professors or students I'm like you're so smart or someone who's like an expert at their job, I'm like, ah, oh, you're you're good enough is brilliant. Just hand it over. <laughs> Just hand it, it over. <laughs> Let you know, it go. You'll be fine. You'll feel give yourself like something I say to a lot to other people and to myself is like, what will you give yourself permission to just be good enough at? Like what can you give yourself permission to not be a perfectionist about? So there's thinking of, through the language of giving yourself permission. This is something I think I, I learned from Brene Brown, right? Like writing yourself a permission slip to just do good enough at this one thing. That can be a good way to start practicing it. I love these hacks that you're talking about that we're talking, you mentioned time tracking. How do you apply that one? Is that literally just making a running log and what, setting an alarm and checking in with yourself every little bit throughout the day and making a note for a couple days? Yeah. I mean, I did that because I was writing a blog post about it and I am a nerd about this stuff. But um, yeah, I made a Google Doc and I think I have a free thing that I made up on my one of my blog posts about this where I was being like conscious about my time management. But yeah, I would just track where what am I doing in these time blocks? And you could do it for like a couple of days, you could do it for one day, you know, it really depends. The purpose of it is to help you see, you know, really how you're spending your time. I think people would be maybe like not surprised, but a little surprised to be like, Oh, wow, I spend so much time on social media. You know, that's the thing I hear a lot. Or, you know, wow, I booked myself up for like five hours without taking a break. So there are some really helpful things that you can notice when you actually look at what you're doing. Totally agree. I'm pretty sure I had like a 24 hour time tracking exercise and channel your chill as well. And I have, I absolutely agree with you that I see my own clients and I've seen it in my life 
that when I actually stepped back and went, how am I spending the hours in my day that social media and technology can just eat up so much time if you are not aware of it? Oh my gosh, this is my jam. One of my like pet fascinations is digital minimalism. So this is something that like Cal Newport is a writer who has a book called Digital Minimalism. Also, Catherine Price wrote How to Break Up with Your Phone. So, and also Jenny O'Dell wrote How to Do Nothing. That was my favorite book from last year. But people are talking about how the people who make social media are literally also the people who make slot machines. Like the reason that we just get sucked into scrolling on Instagram is not because we are bad people. It's because there's actual like little things that are set up to trigger our brain to make us want to get more dopamine. So putting boundaries around tech use and around social media use or email checking or something, there's a reason that it's difficult to do, but it's also really freeing to do it. It's really nice to be like, I have a role where I don't even have my phone in my uh, bedroom at night, you know? So things like, like there are small ways to still use these practices and still use these tools, but not just get sucked into them. Yeah, I just had to be more accountable around how I was using my phone because when I stepped back from it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have this really unhelpful routine that I've slept in, slept in, slept in, slipped into, which Mm -hmm. was that the first hour of my day when I was kind of dozy, I was just like mindlessly scrolling, but it was such a waste of my time. It totally is. I mean, I'm like, sorry, Kate, you were wasting your time. But like, I'm sympathizing. I'm empathizing. because I'm like, yes, me too. I totally do this. I recently after months and months and months of saying I would do it, I finally in February bought an alarm clock, like an actual alarm clock and put my phone outside of my bedroom, as I said. So in the morning before I am allowed to pick up my phone, I have to meditate for 10 minutes. Oh, so Yeah, which is great because I'm actually meditating, which is something that I've practiced before. But now I'm actually really doing it because I get the reward of picking up my phone. I like (laughs) the way you've designed that, Kate. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's just like basic habit formation science, right? Like a cue, a routine and a reward. Yeah, (laughs) the reward is my, my phone over there. I love it. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of setting limits. I loved the concept of the Canva post that could take 45 minutes, but that it could also take 10 minutes with a nine-minute timer and a one-minute polish time. Mm-hmm. How else do you set limits with your time or how else have you begun to manage your time in ways that could be useful for other people as well? Sure. So the things that I do, the number one thing is having a clear predetermined goal about how I want to spend my time. So, you know, thinking about actionable and achievable goals, like actionable, like what are the literal steps I have to take and achievable? Like, is it realistic that I can do this right now with the energy, time, focus, et cetera, that I have? So that's the number one time management practice that I'm employing is I know what I'm doing. I know what it's going to look like to be done with it. Um, One thing that I use, this is a fun little hack. I learned this from Mel Robbins. Have you heard of her five-second rule? Yes, I have heard of yeah. Mel Robbins' five-second so, rule. This is great. So just when I catch myself off task, I will say, okay, I'm off task. I don't want to be off task. And I'll count down from five to one and then stop doing what I'm doing. So if I picked up my phone, for example. 
But the number one thing that has helped me is doing Pomodoros. Oh, I so want to talk more about this because you introduced me to this concept. I call it affectionately pomodoros. My friend and I actually call it tomatoes. Like I'm going to go do some tomatoes, which is really cute. But I think people call it the Pomodoro technique or Pomodoro method. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like one of, one of those. So Pomodoro, this is honestly the single handedly, the reason that I am finishing my dissertation on time. So it was developed in 1980 by Francisco Cirilla. And it's called Pomodoro because he would use a kitchen timer shaped like a tomato to time his work. And this is an example of a pulse and pause technique. So pulse, meaning you're working for a certain amount of time and pause. Another pulse and pause technique is 52 minutes and 17 minutes. So 52 minutes of work, 17 of rest. But I like the Pomodoro because it works by you setting your clear goal for what you want to do. Then you work for 25 uninterrupted minutes. So you'll set a timer. There's lots of apps out there. I just use some free apps on my phone or computer. You work for 25 minutes and then you take a five minute break. And then you do that four times. So three more times after that. And then you take a 15 to 30 minute break, depending on what you need. And the reason I love the Pomodoro so much is because they can help you to feel like you're progressing when you're working on a long-term project. So instead of saying like, oh man, I have to write a hundred pages. You can say, I'm going to do four Pomodoros today. And then you can check that off and you can give yourself permission to be like, I did a great job today. I'm done working for the today on that task. And 25 minutes of work is, you know, like, obviously, if you have to, like, get up and get a drink or something like that, you like, you can choose to do that. But if you know, you're only working for 25 minutes, you can resist the urge to check email, or check your phone or something like that. So that's, those are a couple of the reasons why I love Pomodoro so much. Does it always have to be 25 minutes, Kate? Or can you do it differently? Um, you can do it however you want. 25 minutes is just like the standard way that this person did it. So a lot of people do that. But some people like to do it for 30 minutes. Some people, I mean, like I said, there's been a study where people will do 52 minutes on and 17 minutes off. So you could do it however you want. But I love that there's that five minute break built in. And the break is very essential. Like you have to take a break. That's, you know, what makes the Pomodoro technique work. I, when I take my break, I intentionally will get up, walk, stretch, get a drink of water or a tea and look away from my screen. So I like to use that. Or if I have to do stretches for like yoga or something, I'll like be doing my stretches. So I like that there's the breaks built in. So you can have set the time for whatever you want, but just make sure you take those breaks. I uh, do something similar. I try and do a 75 minute block though, just of really productive time in the morning. And then I do my work that I don't have to be as focused on later in the afternoon. So my writing and things I will do in the morning. And what I found was by sitting down, turning off my email, setting a timer, I got through my own resistance more efficiently too, because there was just no reason not to get going. Oh, totally. And did you feel like a sense of like, like for me in a situation like that, I would have like a premeditated uh, satisfaction. I would be like, I'm going to be so proud when I'm done. <laughs> you know, yeah. like know that I'm like checking this thing off and then I'll be done. Like that feels good. 
For sure. No, I did have that. I I often had a little bit of anxiety before starting, but like once I got to the desk, it was like, just get it done. And I have been amazed at what I can produce in 75 minutes, people. Amazed. <laughs> Good for you. That's amazing. I love that. You know, when, when this is a total side note to that, but my office, when we moved into our new place, we were going to have our offices next to each other, but we switched so that we could have our bedroom in between our offices so that when we're both working, we can, you know, because we both work from home a lot that we can just focus. So like in my morning session, I have to be like, don't bother me for two hours. Don't show me anything funny. You know, I have to work. So I like that morning work session as well. I think that actually raises a really interesting conversation, ties back into something we mentioned a little bit earlier, but having boundaries, right? Communicating how you want to spend your time, need to spend your time to other people. And part of that is turning off email. Part of that might be saying to fiance or partner, you know, I, I'm doing productive work right now. Please respect that. Have you found it's important to just boundaries in every avenue has helped you manage your time better? Yeah, they have. I think boundaries around putting my phone and my watch on silent, not checking email. Like I'll set a boundary with myself even where I will like just work in a notebook and write by hand so that I don't have any tech distractions. But yeah, telling my partner like I'm going to work or leaving and going to a coffee shop so I'm around no one I know. Things like that have been helpful for me. So like it's setting boundaries with other people around like, please don't bother me during this time, but also setting boundaries with yourself around like, these are the things I will not access for X amount of time while I'm working. (laughs) Yeah, totally hear you on the boundaries. Yeah, it's with others and with yourself. Kate, I want to ask you the intermission questions now. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are you you a morning person or a night person? I am a morning person. Absolutely. I, especially now that I have my little alarm clock that I mentioned, it has like bird sounds in the morning. So I'll wake up and I'll get my lemon water and meditate and then make coffee. And we have like these breakfast cookies I make and I'll bring them up and then we'll have, you know, my partner and I will have coffee and cookies for in the morning. But I love waking up before her and just having that me time. Oh, I love getting up now. I was saying to my husband, though, this morning, I love the sound of the birds. I literally go through my phone and I choose the softest, most gentle wake up alarm I can find. And I finally said to my husband this morning, because he does the snooze thing, which drives me crazy. (laughs) I'm your husband. That's what I do. It's it's horrible. (laughs) It is horrible. I do the basically the Mel Robbins effect of like, I I have a little mantra that I say to myself and I just bounce. So I'm the person who hears my alarm once and bounces out of bed. But he has been setting his alarm to go off before mine. And I'm like, his is aggressive. And one of those really annoying iTunes sounds that like (laughs) just is offensive. And so I'm literally, and this only happened this morning when I was like, I am done. I am done with those noises in my morning. So I'm going to literally change it on his phone. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I had, I would do that. And before I bought this clock and I had a ringtone that was effective for me because I would snooze. If I could, I would snooze for an hour. It's now I've gotten much better. I only will let my clock snooze once and then I wake up. But I had a ringtone that I used that my uh, partner said was like breaking glass. It was like, <laughs> the she was yes. like, it's like a demonic wind chime. You know? That is exactly the one that I think my husband has the demonic wind chime that sounds like breaking glass. I, I am with yeah. her. I am with her. <laughs> Do you know what's on your bedside table, Kate? I do. So this clock with the bird sounds, but also a stack of books. I think right now 
there's Adrienne Marie Brown's Pleasure Activism, and then which I started, and um, the new Chani Nicholas book, You Were Born for This. So it's about like your sun, moon, and rising sign. I haven't started that one yet, but yeah, that's my bedside table. You have a freaky memory for books, Kate. I mean, like I'm literally <laughs> going to have to go through this podcast and be like, write down all the books that she mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I love reading. I love researching. Yeah. What is your favorite self-care activity? Well, it's definitely taking baths. And if I can have baths plus reading a book, like reading some sort of fiction, usually anything Sherlock Holmes or like what I call Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, <laughs> like people who rewrite Sherlock Holmes is my jam. So bath plus one of those books. That is epic. People who rewrite Sherlock Holmes. Do you, is that called mm-hmm. fan fiction? I don't really read fiction, but. Oh, they're great. Yeah, I like what one of the things that I did to help stop being a workaholic was to read YA or to read just fiction, like adult fiction, because it was not work. So that was like one of the practices and I ended up loving it. That's awesome. Do you have a book, you've mentioned many, but a book that has touched you an important point in your life? I do, yeah. So I think this would be Gretchen Rubin's uh, The Happiness Project because I read that before I started the tending year and I was just very inspired by the way that she would pick a certain theme to work on each month. So that was really cool seeing that she had done that and then trying out a similar project for myself. What's a life lesson that took you a good while to learn? Mm. So mine would be valuing growth over like a quick uh, solution. So like, for example, like I quit drinking, I quit smoking cigarettes, you know, like being present with my uh, personal growth instead of just, you know, something to just like, shut me up or calm me down in the moment and that's hard it's hard to do the work it's hard to do the work I think there's a really important conversation that so often the quick fix you know it it is it's quick the the work is much longer term right Mm -hmm. oh it's so much better like it's so for me personally it's been like so incredibly worth it to like you know, get through the like gritty, you know, complicated, actual real growth instead of just like, okay, I'll just put my head in the sand. So that's took me, it took me a long time to learn it though. I agree. It's so worth it. It was so much better than numbing out. What is one thing in your day you can't do without Kate? So this is like very corny, but I think that my one thing I can't do without is laughing with my partner, like my sweetheart. She's hilarious. She's so funny and we're always making each other laugh until we cry like every day so um she travels a lot for work so even when she's gone like still talking and laughing so that's yeah an everyday perk for me that is impressive because you know and I'm sure you came across this when we work together but one of the other things I ask people is when is the last time you laughed because I don't think a lot of people get that in their lives Kate nice work finding a partner that makes you laugh that hard Thank you. Yeah, I'm really lucky. (laughs) You are lucky. How would you describe the soul? Oh, I love this question. I always love how people answer this on your podcast. It's so So interesting, isn't it? It's such a beautiful question. I love how sometimes people are like, oh my God. And sometimes people are like, oh, totally. Here you go. So for me, the soul, I feel like is like that part of us, which is like inherently worthy of love and like 
that wants to love other people as well. So it's like really tied around like loving others and loving ourselves. Mm, When you say that, I really just think of that concept of namaste. The light in me Mm. sees the light in you. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. Mm, Okay. What does fulfillment mean to you personally, Kate? For me, fulfillment is when I can enable and help other people value and love themselves. So like that brightness of when people are, you know, being cheered on to like really practice self-love. Oh, uh, I only want to ask you a couple more questions. We'll start to wrap up. I've been so mesmerized by this conversation. We're taking taking up all of your time today. Mm. When we contemplate these ideas of productivity, workaholism, time management, and your relationship with all three of those concepts, what have been some of your biggest personal takeaways or insights as you have already walked this far on the journey? I think my biggest takeaway is that I want to approach things with intention. So that's my theme word for 2020 is being intentional about how I labor, what I expect of myself and others. Another thing is thinking about like, again, like the do less and achieve more, like being very conscious that just because I have a lot of tools at my disposal and I'm very practiced in them, I can get my work done quickly. But when I'm done, it doesn't mean that I just do more work. It means that I intentionally can rest and, you know, take care of myself in that way. So the third thing with that, I think, is accountability. For me, working from home, holding myself accountable, and I've found tools and ways to do that, but also just like reaching out to others and asking if they can help hold me accountable. So that's like a a big thing that I do with coaching with folks is like me holding them accountable to be like, can I email you to like see how you're doing with this? So like not feeling alone in our productivity path, I think, is very helpful, too. Because changing our changing habits and shifting your perspective is a huge deal. And sometimes that's like a thing that has to happen first. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that when we talk about habits and habit formation, you know, some of these things can sound so simple, but it's the doing them that becomes the difficult part and making them mm-hmm. a habit. Oh, absolutely. Totally. I think it's so it can feel incredibly overwhelming when you're starting out. But I think the rewards are like, you can have some pretty quick rewards, like, for example, trying Pomodoro that will provide like, a quick response and reward like that can feel good and encourage you to go on. But it can be very hard to say, I'm going to set a boundary around how much labor I do. When you have other people in your life who are like, you must labor all the time. (laughs) You know, so it can be hard to, to like, intentionally choose to go against the grain in that way for sure I just have one final question Kate if you had one thing to leave the here to thrive listeners with today what would it be it would be that your personal value is not dependent on your labor pomodoros parkinson's law planning fallacies I hope your brain is going tick 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 As I mentioned, Kate is a productivity coach and you can find how to work with her over at her website, kateliterate.com. You can also follow her on Instagram or via her blog, which is called The Tending Year. I have got a list of all those books that she mentioned over at the website, 
thrive.how forward slash podcast 133. You'll also find it in the show notes wherever you listen, but thrive.how forward slash podcast 133 to find a list of all of Kate's recommended reads. A quick note, and well done if you're listening to this point and you'll be ahead of the game. I am going to start releasing these episodes on Tuesdays. I noticed when I released one randomly on a Tuesday that it did a lot better. So straight up, apparently you guys want to hear me midweek more than your weekends. Makes sense with the commuting thing. So from now forward, you can expect these episodes to drop every other Tuesday. Until the Tuesday after next, it's getting confusing for my little brain. Thank you for listening. I'd love if you could leave a review. They mean so much and I swear they go up when I actually mention it on the podcast. Probably just one of those friendly little reminder thingies, right? We all need a nudge, but it matters immensely to the podcast. It helps the podcast get seen by iTunes. Come follow me on Instagram if you don't already, kate.snowwise. Come find the Facebook group, Here to Thrive Community. Just come find me. Come find me away from the podcast. And until then, just keep thriving, beautiful people. Keep thriving.